This episode of the Thrive Life Podcast is presented to you by Roar Alexander, powered by Thrive Life International and home of the Thrive Life Challenge. Get ready to discover everything you want to know about fitness, nutrition, and optimized healthy lifestyle hacks to help you truly earn your Thrive Life. Also, be sure to keep up with Roar at www.roaralexander.com and share the Thrive Life podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or the Thrive Life podcast page on Facebook. Now, with no further delay, let's get on to the show. Hey, everybody, welcome to the Thrive Life podcast. I'm your host, Roar Alexander, and today we have a great show coming up for you live from Bangkok, Thailand. So, Today's episode, if you didn't know, it's called Fat, Sick, and Dying, and it has little to do with what you're eating. Now, before we get into it, just let you know that it actually does have a lot to do with what you're eating, but not in the way that we typically think about it. So today we're not talking about carbohydrates, we're not talking about high protein, low protein, high carb, low carb, high fat, you know, is coconut oil good for you, is it bad for you, saturated fat, we're not talking about any of that. Today, what I want to talk about is we're going to spend a lot of time, this entire podcast, basically talking about the environment and how our modern environment, modern technology uh, is setting us up uh, just to be overweight, to be chronically um, inflamed, to be sick, and just to honestly to be dying early, hence the term fat, sick, and dying. So uh, that's what we're going to be talking about in a few minutes. So we're going to get into it. We're going to be talking about a couple things today. Mostly we're going to be talking about... um, uh, estrogen and estrogen mimickers or what they call endocrine disruptors. Um, basically things that we'll, we'll talk about in a few minutes anyway. So before we get into that though, I do want to just let you know that if you haven't checked out my website, www.roaralexander, make sure you go to that. I have renamed my uh, blog for a while. I was trying to come up with the name. It's hard, you know, because so many people out there, it's like trying to get a domain nowadays. So many people have taken every single name, every single domain. There literally is nothing original left. Like, I mean, if you own a CrossFit, good luck naming your CrossFit nowadays because it's it's nearly impossible. Um, So my new, uh, the new format anyways of the the blog is called The Long Game. And I was trying to think about it because I'm like, you know, I'm really interested in longevity, exercise for longevity, being able to exercise, you know, honestly, I'm I'm bored of just talking about fat and proteins and carbohydrates. I mean, you you know, we're not 23 anymore, not 24. Who cares? Like, honestly, it's so tiring talking about weight loss, weight loss, weight loss, you know, all the time. It's to me, it's the most boring subject in the world, really. And other problem is everybody has such an opinion when it comes to nutrition. It's, it's just a frustrating conversation. If I say I like milk, the, the anti-dairy people get freaked out. If you say you like meat, the vegans get freaked out. If you say vegans are weirdos, they, they, they get freaked out. Everybody gets upset about everything. There's literally nothing you can say when it comes to nutrition because people are so ridiculously passionate about it. I don't know really why people care so much. Eat what you want. You know if something's healthy or not. Let's not get into the fact if it's... You know spiritually healthy or is it some kind of other dimensional plane healthy like we know for the most part what things are healthy and what things are not so to me that's an incredibly boring conversation but what i do find interesting is you know taught concepts when it comes to longevity and looking around at the rest of the world at what they're doing to live long because like uh, you've heard me say this before 
most of our nutrition advice and exercise advice, our lifestyle advice, is coming from countries that have some of the highest levels of obesity and uh, chronic illness in the world. You know, we're sitting there listening to all these Americans and Australians and Canadians tell us what we should be eating, yet the people in Japan and other parts of, uh, other parts of Asia, uh, you know, parts of Europe are living much longer and much healthier lives. I mean, you know, right now the U.S. is all about the, um, you know, with this uh, ketogenic, 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 yet the Okinawa diets and the Mediterranean diets have been proven over and over and over again just to work better. So that's kind of what I'm, I'm really interested in, is seeing how the rest of the world taking the, you know, why is Singapore the healthiest country in the world? Why do people in Japan live the longest? Why is Scandinavia the happiest countries in the world? I want to get advice from the people who are actually walking the walk, not just talking the talk. So I'm really interested in longevity. So I started thinking about it. And I was like, what is a good name for my blog? What's a good name for my blog? And I just came up with super easy. It's just the long game because that's really what I'm playing at. And that's what I want you guys to play at. I want you to play at the long game. And really, that's a combination of doing everything right from when you were in your 20s. It's not about decide, just screwing around and then deciding at 40 or 50 it's time to do things right. The long game starts basically from your baby. I'm making sure my kid, he's playing the long game right now. Uh, we're, moving to, um, back to, we're moving back to Vancouver. And uh, I've decided that our house is actually not going to have any furniture. We're not going to have any traditional style furniture. It's all going to be empty space, going to have a Japanese-style bed on the floor, uh, going to have um, some balls to sit on, some different pads on the floor. It's going to be a nice-looking house. I mean, we're not talking like some college sketchy mattress on the floor thing. Everything's going to be very nice, but it's going to be set up for optimum movement, which we'll get into another podcast. But, you know, I'm making sure that he has all the tools he needs so he can play the long game starting from 18 months old until he's 110. I myself have been pretty much playing the long game for years. You know, I really got over the whole bodybuilding sort of just, you know, just lame fitness stuff a long time ago. And I've been playing kind of long game. So I decided to name this blog The Long Game. And I look at friends like my friend Ramona Berganzi, you know, she's 54, 55, whatever. She's she's 50 something. That's all I know. And she's still training every day. And her mom's in her 70s. And her mom's, you know, doing Zumba classes. And her mom's teaching aerobics classes. You got my grandma who lives uh, on Vancouver Island in a city called Victoria, which is the capital of British Columbia. And, you know, I don't exactly know how old she is. I would say somewhere between 88 and 92. Let's just throw it in there. I mean, she's still going for swims in the freezing cold lake. I mean, she's playing the long game. She's in awesome shape. So that's what my new blog's about, guys. If you haven't been to it yet, make sure you check out the long game. And what we're talking about today has a major effect on the long game. So... We're going to be talking about a couple of things today, and I'm going to try to make it as simple as I can because it can get really, really complex, and we don't want it to. It's not, the scientific processes of why these things are happening are not as important as, like, this, like talk about a car crash. You get a car crash, you know, physics guys can give you a hundred different reasons why, you know, the body gets crushed, the G-forces. You don't need to know. All you need to know is if you smash into another car, that's a really bad time. So it's the same thing with this. I don't want to get super caught up in the science. I'm going to talk to you, give you a really quick overview of a couple things you need to be aware of. Then we're going to talk about just what you have to do to avoid these shitty situations. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. So 
First thing I want to talk about is estrogen. We're going to be talking today about estrogen and the endocrine system and how different chemicals affect the endocrine system, which can then affect hormones specifically quite a bit when it comes to estrogen. They seem to um, affect the, the estrogen or the estrogen pathways, which will affect the testosterone pathways. But basically, when we think of endocrine disruptors, well, a lot of the times we are talking about things that interfere with estrogen, but um, we're going to go over a whole bunch of different kinds. But first of all, let's get into estrogen. The very first thing we have to know is that both men and women have estrogen. That's what you, you need to have. It. We're going to talk about what happens if you're too high or too low in a little bit. But generally, estrogen is considered the female hormone as it's the hormone that creates the female sex gender and the female reproductive system. But like I said, men have it, but we have to make sure that we keep it in balance. So that's the most important thing. Um, especially, you know, so a lot of people say, well, why do we have it? Well, especially in men, it's really going to help with bone health uh, and just, just total growth overall. So we'll uh, get back to estrogen in a few minutes. So then we can talk about the endocrine system and what is the endocrine system well it's probably if we just let's just get right down to it according to the national institute of environmental health sciences endocrine disruptors okay are chemicals or substances that may interfere with the body's endocrine system to produce adverse developmental reproductive neurological and immune effects in both humans and wildlife so what is the endocrine system? So now we know that endocrine disruptors affect the endocrine system. Well, the endocrine system is made up of all the body's different hormones and it regulates all the biological processes in the body. Everything from just where you're conceived right up to adulthood and even into old age. And this includes the development of the brain and the nervous system the function of metabolism and your blood sugar levels, and the growth and function of the reproductive systems. So major parts of the endocrine system include the pancreas, the parathyroid glands, uh, sorry, parathyroid glands, the hyperthalamus, the thalamus, the penile gland, um, adrenal glands, pituitary gland, thyroid gland, male testes, and the female ovaries. So we're not going to talk about them all, but let's talk about a few. Let's talk about the hypothalamus. The hypothalamus links our endocrine and nervous system together. It is, in fact, basically the engine that drives the endocrine system, okay? The hypothalamus is located in the brain. The pituitary gland receives signals from the hypothalamus. The posterior lobe secretes hormones that are made by the hypothalamus, while the anterior lobe produces its own hormones, and some of these act on other endocrine glands. The thyroid gland. We all know, we've all heard about thyroid. The thyroid gland is critical to healthy development and maturation of humans. It's also very key in helping to regulate metabolism. So quite often, you'll hear people that have a hard time losing weight have a hypothyroid uh, issue and people that have a hard time putting on weight have a hyperthyroid meaning it's going too fast the adrenal glands these are made up of two glands the cortex and the medulla the adrenal glands produce hormones in response to a stress 
Adrenal glands also regulate blood pressure, glucose metabolism, and the body's salt and water balances. So it's really important that we balance our salt and water and also our response to stresses. Okay? The pancreas is responsible for producing glucogen, uh, glu- glucagon sorry, and insulin, both hormones that maintain the concentration of glucose sugar in the blood. So extremely important that we keep our pancreas in order because it's going to control the amount of glucose in the blood, which is, of course, going to be extremely important. So this is the thing we need to know, that even seriously tiny doses can create extremely devastating effects. The smallest doses of endocrine disruptors can really mess our bodies up, okay? But the thing is, you don't see these right off the top. Some of these can take literally decades um, to, to become a problem. So the things that you're doing in your teens and your 20s are going to create issues for you in your 40s, your 50s, your 60s, and up, okay? So... Our hormonal system is so delicate that even the tiny exposures to endocrine disrupting chemicals at key points of development could set us up for disease later in life. And we are talking literally here, guys, parts per billion. So I want you to put this into perspective. Endocrine disruptors, when we talk about parts per billion, we are literally saying it's the equivalent of putting a dropper, so you have an eyedropper, and it's the equivalent of putting one drop of endocrine disrupting chemicals into 20 Olympic sized swimming pools. So think about that. You have 20 swimming pools. That's the size of a small lake. And it's like putting a drop into that lake. So that's what we're talking about here that you don't have to have massive amounts of these so when we're talking about endocrine disruptors we're not talking you know kilograms we're not talking pounds we're not even talking grams we're talking micrograms milligrams we are talking the smallest amounts that can mess us up so let's talk about estrogen for a minute because a lot of it links back to estrogen so you know, a lot of people, you know, there used to be a lot of talk about what happens if estrogen is too high, estrogen is too high, and it does create a lot of bad things. But lately, just in the last year, there's been a lot of research into what happens if estrogen is too low. And a lot of the things that we assume only happen if estrogen is too high also happen if estrogen is too low, particularly in men. And we'll get to that in a minute. So let's talk about what happens if it's too high first. Well, first, let's talk about um, sexual dysfunction. Okay, so you're going to have low libido. You are going to have decreased erectile function. Okay, so in other words, your penis is going to have a very hard time doing its job. Okay, your sexual uh, cravings are going to drop. There could be an enlargement of the breast tissue. You've all heard that man boobs. Okay, so there could be an enlarging of the breast tissues, and this goes for men and women. So. Everything I'm talking about does affect, obviously, you know, the penis problem doesn't affect, but it can affect sexual uh, libido in men and women. There could be uh, urinary tracts uh, symptoms associated with benign uh, prostatic hyperplasia. So you could have some number of urinary tract symptoms, increased abdominal fat, okay? But ironically, they used to say, Guys, if you know you're getting fat because you have um, too high testosterone, too high testosterone, 
Actually, now they've discovered that it can be a symptom of low testosterone as well. We'll talk about that in a minute. Other things are just generally feeling tired, feeling lazy, uh, loss of muscle mass, uh, emotional disturbance, particularly depression, as well as type 2 diabetes. So, like I said, they used to say, especially for men, that you would have sexual dysfunction if your estrogen was too high. You would have fat around your stomach if estrogen is too high. But now they've actually discovered that men with estrogen that's too low also has the same problem. They have the exact same problem with low libidos, erectile problems, fat around the waist, and symptoms of depression. So we definitely have to make sure that we're keeping our estrogen levels balanced. For women, you also get things like hot flashes, mood swings, increased amounts of depression, trouble concentrating, like I said before, increased urinary tract infections, and irregular periods. So those are just some of the things that having too much or too little estrogen can do. So now we're going to talk about how do we get too much estrogen in our in our environment because the problem for the most part isn't too little a lot of the times although it can be but a lot of the problems are we're getting too much so first of all let's talk about an endocrine receptor and what is an endocrine disruptor so these are synthetic or they can also be natural hormones that mimic and disrupt not hormones so how do they do this well there's three ways First of all, an endocrine disruptor can mimic or at least partially mimic naturally occurring hormones in the body, potentially producing overstimulation. So that means that you're going to get hormones that are going to be getting overstimulated. Second of all, they bind to a receptor within a cell and blocks the natural hormone from blinding. The normal signal then fails to occur and the body fails to respond properly. So think about it as you got a cell with some holes in it. And what happens is the natural estrogen molecule is supposed to go into that hole. It fits like a puzzle piece. But the artificial one comes in its place and then the real one has nowhere to bind to. So the body then fails to respond properly. And then we also have interfere or block the way natural hormones or the receptors are made and controlled which alters their proper metabolism so those are your three big ways that endocrine disruptors affect you so now that we know that we want to avoid endocrine disruptors because they can create havoc with our estrogen with balances which are going to in turn create havoc with our testosterone and other things such as DHEA. They affect more than just estrogen and testosterone. Endocrine disruptors can affect a number of hormones. Your body has a whole lot of hormones, okay? So now what we want to do is we're going to talk about the top places that we find endocrine disruptors, okay? And this is how you can now avoid them. So the first group we're gonna talk about is xenoestrogens. Xenoestrogens are foreign groups that are man-made in a laboratory using synthesized chemicals that are hormonally active agents. And they basically give us an unintended estrogenic effect that we don't want. So number one, you've probably heard about this, BPA in plastics. Now, here's the thing that you need to know. 
Yes, avoid BPA, but you have to understand that it's not just BPA. What happened was we took the BPA out and you know all these big companies, they are not interested in your health. They're really not. So what they did instead is they put in BPS. BPS works the exact same as BPA and in fact actually takes longer to break down in the environment than BPA does. So all you've done is you've just traded a red apple for a green apple, but you're still getting an apple. So avoiding plastics, regardless of what they say they're free. I don't care if they're color free, um, BPA free, scent free, whatever. Just avoid plastics, period. Okay, we don't even have to get more into that. Plastic Tupperware, plastic bottles, plastic wrap, anything plastic. Basically, when you put your food into something, if you drop it on the ground, it should shatter apart. Okay? Benzofino. This is found in sunscreens. Okay? So a lot of these artificial sunscreens contain benzophenone, which has been helped linked to actually increasing cancer rates. So we want to make sure that if you're using a sunscreen, you're using something natural. Now, I'm going to be following up on another podcast soon with things that you can actually do at home. Uh, we're going to talk about all the different alternatives you can use at home. So today, for instance, I'll talk about natural cleaners. But, you know, that just leaves you to go and research natural cleaners. But in another podcast coming up, we'll talk about some natural cleaners. We're going to talk about some natural sunscreens and stuff like that. But for now, avoid all those highly chemical kind of cheaper uh, sunscreens. Then we get to phthalates. Now, phthalates, again, these are used in plastics. And they're used to make plastics softer. So quite often you're going to see them in water bottles, things that are soft and you can crunch. So bottles, curtains, vinyl, so your vinyl posters, vinyl banners, anything like that. They also help to make scents last longer. So air fresheners, things you spray in the air, things that have smells, it makes them so they last longer. Now here's an interesting study. So they took 14 leading air fresheners and found that 12 of them had phthalates. Even the Environmental Protection Agency, the EPA, warns against the use of indoor air fresheners as there's four basic ingredients in them. Formaldehyde, petroleum distillates, P-dichlorobenzene, and aerosol propellants. Basically what they've said is that air fresheners are strong irritants to the eyes, skin, and throat, and can be considered very strong endocrine disruptors. Another area is, another thing that we want to make sure that we're avoiding, sorry, is parabens. So you may have noticed lately that a lot of different ingredients, uh, packages, are labeled paraben-free. And these, what parabens are, in case you don't know, is the most widely used preservatives in personal care products. Basically, parabens stop fungus, bacteria, and other microbes from growing in creams, makeup, anything like that. You'll see it even in toothpaste. It's basically everywhere. They have really long names, and they're basically everywhere. So you're going to see ethylparaben, propylparaben, butylparaben, isobutylparaben, anything that says paraben, basically you're going to want to avoid. You're, it's in so many different, and I can't even say cheap because it's in the expensive high-end stuff too. The, the Body Shop, 
the body shop is you know basically the thing is they're all about the healthy body again a lot of their stuff's packed with parabens there shampoos mascaras foundations body lotions soaps everything has parabens so do your best to avoid that while we're on the topic another chemical that is a lot in soaps deodorants toothpaste shaving creams and everything is triclosan or triclosan triclosan has been heavily linked to affecting metabolism through the thyroid gland now it's interesting the government has actually finally stepped up in north america especially particularly in the united states and what they're going to do is triclosan is going to be banned starting this year but they have until september to take it out so that means they have about another two months or so from right now to take it out and then of course you're talking about a product's that are going to be sitting on the shelves for a long time. So even though, let's say, September 1st, they stop making them, it's not like on September the 2nd you're going to get it. You probably won't even get most of the newer stock for a month or two months or even longer, depending on the, the turnover of the store that you're at. So those um, um, zytoestrogens are going to want to be something that we're going to want to avoid, okay? Next, number two, is phytoestrogens. So these can be thought of as natural xenoestrogens. And the primary two we're looking at are soy and flax, and they contain isoflavones, which is a type of phytoestrogen that mimics the effect of estrogen on the body. So when you eat lots of soy, it has the potential to disrupt estrogen-sensitive systems in the body, including the reproductive system, which of course includes the pituitary gland, the brain, and the reproductive organs. A lot of people eat a lot of soy. There have been cases where women have eaten so much soy that they've temporarily shut down their menstrual cycle. Now, here's the argument you get a lot when it comes to soy. People say, well, they eat soy in Japan, they eat soy in China, they eat soy in Asia, and look at them, they're perfectly fine, they're perfectly healthy. In fact, even you, Roar, you, Roar, said people in Japan live the longest that you said they eat soy on a regular basis, and you are 100% correct. They do eat soy every single day. But the kind of soy they're eating is dramatically different than the kind of soy we're eating. First of all, it's non-GMO. Over 90% of the soy produced in North America is genetically modified. Now, whether or not you prescribe to the problems with, or if you think or not, there's even problems with genetically modified foods, that's one thing. In a few minutes, we're going to be talking about the problem with what they do with GMO food. So let's say the GMO itself isn't a problem. The things that they do to the GMO foods are actually a major problem, and that's a proven problem. So whether or not in the actual creating of a food through GMO causes good or bad we're not sure yet because we haven't actually seen it we have hypotheses but what we can say is that by using what they do on gmos which i know it doesn't make sense right now but we'll get to in a few minutes that's the problem so first of all they don't do gmo soy in japan number two the soy that they do is usually called nato which is a fermented soy they eat a lot of fermented soy and the fermentation process dramatically changes the structure and how the soy affects the body. It's also a very high source of vitamin K2 
and beneficial bacteria. So now we know that, first of all, they're not doing GMO, so it's much closer to an organic version. Second of all, they're fermenting it. Third thing you have to understand is they eat on average one ounce. So they're eating on average one ounce. That is a very, that's about the size of maybe a couple dominoes of a soy product. They are not drinking Starbucks soy lattes. They're not having scoops of soy whey protein. They're not eating tofu hot dogs, tofu hamburgers, you know, tofu erky, you know, you know, tofu turkey. They are not packing away massive amounts of soy protein. Again, in our North American way, we love to go hard or go home. And that is exactly, that mentality is what's led us to the chronic illness and death policy that we have now going on in the Western world. And we are spreading to the rest of the world. So keep that in mind. Next time somebody says to you, well, the Japanese eat a lot of soy, you say, no, you're right. They eat soy. They don't eat a lot, and they eat non-GMO, close to organic, fermented soy protein. Okay, so that ends the that argument. Now, flax. Flax is another interesting. A lot of people think flax is really good for you. But again, flax, after soy, flax has an extremely high amount of isoflavones coming right underneath soy. So again... If you're talking about getting your omega-3s, I really think that fish sources, or if you're a vegan or vegetarian, then algae sources are going to be a much better choice because those do not interfere with your estrogen at all the way that flax can. So differences, of course, between soy and flax is, you know, you're not downing usually grams and grams and grams and grams of flax like you would. Usually what happens is you take a tablespoon of flax seed, something like that. So that's why flax isn't as bad because you're not taking in such high amounts. But if we took the amount of flax, we take soy. Let's say we had flax dogs and flax turkey, then we'd have a major problem. So let's get into number three. This is three is a really interesting one because everybody is on these anti-gluten kicks now. Yet, there's a lot of evidence that says it may not even be the gluten in the wheat that is causing a lot of these problems we have. It actually could come down to the, the mycotoxins or the moles and the funguses that are inside of North American wheat. And particularly, we're talking about xerolinone. The FDA in the United States and Canada literally has no limits on a mold called xeronidone, yet in Europe, the limits are extremely high. Xerolinone, also known as ZEA, so we're just going to call it ZEA from now on, is a fungal mycotoxin which is present in a wide range of human foods but very high in wheat and corn. It has very positive, uh, sorry, well, positive in a, in a negative way. It has very negative disruptive effects on hormone balances, mainly due to its naturally occurring estrogens. So the amount of molds that we're getting, there's another one too called acrotoxin A. I don't have a lot of information on that. But the fact is North America has a much higher level of molds allowances than it does in Europe. Now, this jets us into herbicides, which again brings us back into the corn, the wheat, and the soy. Again, particularly in North America. 
the World Health Organization, the first one we're going to talk about is uh, glyphosate, also known by the trademark name Roundup. Then we're going to talk about atrazine and paraquat. But let's talk about the biggest one first, glyphosate, because this is going to bring us back to that GMO stuff we were talking about a few minutes ago. So Roundup is a herbicide that was created by Monsanto to spray on their crops. So what they did is they genetically created wheat and soy that can survive even though it's getting covered in glyphosate or Roundup. So what happens is they spray these fields of genetically modified plants with the very toxic herbicide that kills everything else around it except for the wheat and the corn. So the World Health Organization has stated that Roundup is probably, very probably, a carcinogen for humans. So the World Health Organization has stated that there's a very good chance, because you know they never like to be very black and white, but there's a really good chance that Roundup is a carcinogen for humans. And it's been shown to have birth defects in pigs. It's literally created birth defects in pigs that have been fed food that is high in Roundup. It's also been found in high amounts of drinking water in the United States, Canada, and Australia, as long as, um, sorry, in Canada, the U.S., and Australia, and several European countries, including Holland, Denmark, and Sweden, have banned or restricted the use of Roundup herbicides by local authorities because of the alleged links of a high variety of health problems, not just including cancer, but you're talking everything from birth defects to kidney failure to celiac disease, colitis, and autism. Now, celiac disease, that brings us back to people that have problems with quote-unquote gluten. Well, is it the gluten or is it the glyphosate? Hmm. Glyphosate has also been linked to tumors in mice and rats, and there's also an IARC that classifies a mechanistic evidence such as DNA damage to human cells through exposure to glyphosate. So there's evidence that it actually mechanically causes damage to human DNA. So now we want to talk a little bit more about the gut. So what happens when you actually eat Roundup? So when you eat Roundup, it causes an extreme disruption of the microbes function in your stomach. So of course, you know, in your stomach, you have a variety of good bacteria. What happens is it kills the good bacteria and the bad bacteria, but it preferentially affects the beneficial bacteria. So that means it actually prefers to kill the good bacteria over the bad, basically allowing the bad bacteria to take over. Now, in your gut, you do have good and bad, but the ratio is supposed to be 85% good to 15% bad. What happens is this comes in and starts to destroy and kill the good bacteria, meaning the bad bacteria, that ratio is going to get thrown off. And that then, your body, of course, has to contend with a number of bad bacterias, but also the toxins that are produced by the pathogens. So... There are places in some cities that have actually gone and banned it, but this, it's been very small so far. So the cities of Chicago and Paris 
have gone as far as making the public spaces Roundup free, meaning you can't spray Roundup anywhere like public gardens, public parks, things like that. The city of Vancouver, Canada, my home, has gone one step further in banning it in the use of public and private use. So you cannot use it publicly or privately. So that's a nice big bonus there for living in the city of Vancouver. Leaving so, glyphosate aside, what happens then is we get into number two, atrazine. Now, glyphosate Roundup is the number one used herbicide in the world, yet atrazine is number two, but atrazine could very close be coming up to number one because what's happened is it's now many weeds are being found to be resistant to Roundup. So remember I told you before that they spray Roundup on the fields and it kills all the, it kills all the plants except for the wheat and the corn. Well, what happens is nature always adapts. So now what's happening is those weeds are saying, okay, Roundup can't kill us anymore. So they have to stop. They have to start now counteracting that by dumping atrazine on it. Atrazine has been proven to be linked to birth defects and cancer, was banned in the entire European Union for its potential to contaminate water, and even Switzerland, where it is chiefly manufactured before being shipped off to North America, has banned the use of it. So the country where it's actually, where it's actually manufactured has banned it. So now atrazine use is on the growth, even though Europe has banned it. Now that finally gets us to Paraquat. Paraquat, interestingly enough, has even been banned in freaking China. So we all going on about, you know, China's terror. Even China has banned it. It's now banned in 32 countries besides China. You've got Australia, Germany, the UK, and Malaysia. And yet it is being used now more in the United States at a rate of fourfold in less than 10 years. This is highly toxic and studies have found that ingesting just three grams of it can cause failure of the kidney, the liver and other organs, fibromosis of the lungs and respiratory failure for which there is literally no cure. Even the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, said that Paraquat may be a causative agent or at least a major contributor to the development of Parkinson's disease. And in 2011, a National Institute of Health study found that people who use Paraquat or were exposed to high levels of Paraquat were 2.5 times more likely to develop Parkinson's than non-users. So herbicides guys the herbicides that are in our typical fruits and vegetables now if you go to my website you can go to my blog you're going to see what i have on there which is called the dirty dozen those are your 12 this is not a chart i created it's a very well-known chart these are the 12 things that they use a lot of herbicides on and beside that you are going to have the clean 15 which are kind of the the cleanest of them whether or not you prescribe to organics it's up to you now there's a lot of evidence that says okay you know an organic tomato doesn't have uh, and, you know, that has the exact same amount of vitamins as a regular tomato. So, you know, there's the people that say organics are healthier for you because they have more vitamins and minerals. That necessarily has not been found to be true. But the fact is, guys, they're not sprayed with herbicides. Okay, yes, they might be grown in soil and the soil comes from some. There's nothing you can do about that. It rains on it. The rain has acid rain, whatever you want to call it. But the fact is they're not being dumped on with chemical herbicides, Okay. And it's not just a matter of washing the vegetables. You spray something every single day, it's going to get deep inside the chemical structure of it. Okay? So 
Try to eat your organic vegetables when you can. Let's move on to water. Oh no, you're attacking water. Unfortunately, yes. Going to attack water in two ways. First of all, fluoride. So let's talk about fluoride. Fluoride was added basically into mostly Western water sources after World War II to make it healthier. However, the studies that go all the way back to 1854 to show that there is a large link between the disease goiter, which is an enlarging of the thyroid gland, and fluoride causing hypothyroidism, meaning fluoride causes people to turn down their metabolism so they have a harder time losing fat. The level that is considered safe is three milligrams per day. However, fluoride in most cities that use it has a typical range of 1.2 parts per million in typical tap water, meaning a lot of people that are drinking their prescribed, you know, three to four liters of, you know, quote unquote, clean water a day could in fact be getting up to six milligrams per day. So they've said it's safe up to three, yet very easily the average semi-active person or person who just likes to drink a lot of water might be getting more than double of that. And then, of course, we haven't even talked about the biggest way you can get it, which is showers. But let's, we're going to wait on that. We're going to wait on showers for a minute because we've got to discuss chlorine first. Chlorine. It's not typically classified as an endocrine disruptor. However, it has been hypothesized to increase bladder, kidney, and rectal cancers in people by 93% over those who don't use chlorine water, as well as asthma, and again, affecting the gut biome. Gotta remember, what is chlorine used for? Chlorine is used for killing germs, bacteria that is in the water system. So now you're drinking that water, so you're taking this chlorine is placed into the pipes to clean the bacteria in the pipes. Then you drink the water, you place it into your organic pipes, but you don't think it's going to harm the beneficial bacteria. It just doesn't even make sense. So we want to make sure that we are using chlorine-free water. Get a filter with activator charcoal base in it because that charcoal base is going to neutralize that water you're drinking. Now here's the kicker, okay? Here's, here's the thing that we gotta talk about. The water and steam from your hot shower is basically 10 times worse than you drinking the water. The skin is the largest absorbing tissue that we have. And what happens is when you have a shower, the pores open and then the steam from, and the steam which carries the chlorine goes directly into the bloodstream, bypassing the liver even for detox, as well as your lungs breathing it in. The chloroform, which is a derivative of gas of chlorine, which is found in the steam, dose from a single 10 minute shower is equal to, and probably even greater than that of drinking two liters of water. So every time you take a hot 10 minute shower, you are getting more chlorine chemicals in you than you would if you drank two liters. So two showers a day 
let's say 10 minutes, two showers a day, you're talking four liters, plus you drink two liters of water. So you're getting about six liters of chlorine water inside of you. Charcoal filter, guys, not just in your drinking water, but when I lived in Vancouver originally, uh, before doing my tour here through Asia, uh, I always used a chlorine filter on my shower because I was always amazed how many people would come in, wanted the best water filter we have, wanted the best this, best that, and then I'd say to them, oh, do you use a shower filter? And they would all, I don't think anybody ever said yes. And I was like, well, you're making no sense because you're worried about your little water, your know, Brita filter in your in your sink, sorry, in your in your refrigerator. Yet every day you're showering and getting in two to three liters of chlorine gas into your system. Keep that in mind. Let's move on. We're going to uh, PFCs or purofluorinated chemicals. Of course, we all know about Teflon. Most of you probably have Teflon nonstick pots and pans in your house. Well, those are coated with PFCs and these have been found to be extremely toxic to your system affecting the thyroid significantly. It's been tied to infertility, ineffective sperm, heart disease, thyroid cancer, increased amounts of bad cholesterol and low birth weight in babies. So one of the things I'm going to tell you to do right off the top is throw away that Teflon, get rid of the non-stick. Okay, switch to cast iron, switch to stainless steel. You can also use, they have ceramic ones that are very good, so they have ceramic pots now. Make sure that you guys are getting rid of that Teflon, okay? And then finally, the last one we're gonna talk about today is dioxin. Basically, dioxin is an endocrine disruptor that is a byproduct of industrial processes when it comes to meat. So we want to focus on eating meat that's more organic. What they do is they infuse meat with dioxin, and that's been linked to heart disease, diabetes, revert, uh, reduced fertility, poor sperm activity, and low sperm counts, embryo development interferences, and even in women, spontaneous miscarriages. Meat and other food products which contain animal products provide a majority of the exposure to North Americans and being very fat soluble, it accumulates in fat and can remain there for a long time. So trying to avoid mass produced animal products are going to really dramatically help you cut down on dioxin. So now let's go through some quick ways. Now we've gone through the, all the main places you get endocrine disruptors. There's more red food coloring. Um, actually, another one that can, can increase um, estrogen problems is actually stress. Stress has an effect on estrogen. Without getting really deep into it, basically what happens is cholesterol, which is basically, long story short, the creator or the, the, main, the main chemical, okay, the main substance behind all steroid hormones is converted into progenolone. Progenolone is, can be converted into one of two things, DHEA or progesterone. DHEA, which is very good, you've probably heard about DHEA supplements, is converted into testosterone or estrogen. However, progesterone is converted into cortisol. So what does that mean? When the body's stressed, 
what happens is it will use progesterone to make cortisol and that means that that is less that can be used to create DHA. When DHA is too low, the body then converts testosterone and what little DHA it has into estrogen. So we can definitely see we want to avoid high levels of chronic stress as well because stress can increase estrogen through different means. So now that we know how to, now that we know what they are and where they come from, let's talk about how we can avoid them. So we talked earlier about avoiding any kind of plastics, especially heating and freezing plastics. Don't use plastics in this. If you do have some plastics, whatever you do, don't put them in the microwave and don't use them in the freezer. The heat and the cold has been shown to actually help to leach the um, chemicals into the food. And they've shown that even using a water bottle for a second time, your typical you know, water bottle increases significantly the amounts of endocrine disruptors that just leach into the water. We're not talking about, they didn't put in gasoline, they didn't put in vinegar, they didn't put in any sort of compound into these bottles to see how much, sorry, how much endocrine disruptors it would leak out. They just replaced water back into the plastic bottles and they found extreme amounts of chemicals getting inside the water. Using safe household cleaners. So we talked about that. We talked about how the FDA is gonna ban Trichoslan. Um, which is, as we said before, is an antibacterial agent. So use and avoid chemical-packed household cleaners, things that have parabens, things that have phthalates, anything like that. Try to make your own cleaners. And also avoid all those antibacterial hand sanitizers, okay? Just try to use nice and healthy, natural cleaners. For the ladies and the guys, too, to a point, we'll get to the guys in a minute, birth control, the birth control pill and inundates your body with tons of artificial estrogens, okay? That's how it works. It gives your body way too much estrogen. So using birth control is probably one of the worst things you can do for your health as a woman. Definitely consider other options when it comes to birth control. And guys, spermicide that they put inside the condoms, what do you think that does? That's the whole point of what it does. So avoiding the spermicide condoms is another big one for you too. Also, watch your health and beauty products. The average person, they say, uses nine different beauty products that on average can contain up to 126 different ingredients. Really watch what you're putting on your body. Remember we talked about the showers. Your body is a gigantic absorbing tissue, so be careful what you put on it. Let's talk about diet. We talked a minute ago about the uh, meat, okay? So we talked a little about vegetables, but let's talk about three principles that you can do. Eating less processed foods, eating less foods with chemicals in them, okay? What we call uh, manufactured foods, refined foods. Eating further down the food chain, okay? The further you go up the food chain, what happens is something eats something that eats something that eats something that eats something, then you eat it. So you are what you eat ate. So keeping things as close to the original food chain as possible, keeping it low, first stage or second stage. And then supplementing your diet with compounds that decrease excess estrogen or help your body to eliminate added hormones. For instance, supplements like DIM or Reservatrol. DIM is found, it's a supplement from 
uh, a compound from cruciferous vegetables, which we're going to talk about in a minute. And then resveratrol, which is found in red wine, has also been proven to help to eliminate excess estrogen. We talked earlier about food coloring. I mentioned that a bit. Try to avoid anything with coloring in it. Try to avoid anything with artificial sweeteners in it. Especially those, there's some evidence now that, they're actually help, that they actually attack uh, and kill some of the good bacteria in your stomach. Buying local organic plants. Okay, so like I said before, go to my website, royalexander.com, and check out um, the Dirty Dozen and the Clean 15. Buying natural pasture-raised meats. Okay, trying to find meats or animals that were fed natural, pesticide-free, non-GMO-free diet. And you can't find that, look for things like grass-fed or animal welfare approved. So try to keep your meats as natural as possible. Kind of vegetables that are going to help you? Eating cruciferous vegetables, as I mentioned a minute ago, dim. Things like broccoli sprouts, uh, broccoli, cabbage, bok choy. They contain flavones and indoles that are particularly effective at battling excess estrogen. Okay? Avoiding soy and probably a good idea to avoid the flax. We talked about how in Japan they eat fermented soy. So if you want to, go to the local Asian market and see if you can find some NATO. Okay, but avoid the kind of North American cheesy soy products we have. When I say cheesy, I don't mean soy cheese. I mean cheesy like soy lattes, soy cupcakes, all that sort of stuff. Keep the soy to a minimum. And also go out there and learn about all the different ways they hide soy, like the use of lecithin. Now they call it lecithin. That's just a byproduct of soy. So buy local. Okay, try to meet your local farmers and try to buy everything as local as you can. Talk to the local farmer and find out what they do. Nowadays, it is quite a bit easier. When it comes to your supplements as well, like I said, avoid supplements with lots of artificial flavors, things that make them smell nicer. Artificial colors are a big one, particularly that artificial dye red. You want to be avoiding that one. And then finally, saunas. Now, I'm a huge sauna fan, and I plan on doing a podcast very soon. Hopefully, I can get a really good interview about sauna use. I'm really looking forward to that. But saunas have been found to help eliminate toxins from the body, and this is actually true. They've actually been shown to help you sweat out excess levels of mercury and lead, as well as some other high amounts of toxins. Now, you don't just have to sauna. You want to create sweat. But saunas uh, have a number of very beneficial things beside them. But let's, let's just call it sweating instead of saunaing. If you have a sauna, great, because saunas have also been proved to help boost testosterone and growth hormone. But at the same time, so has exercise. And they also lower the estrogenic metabolism, um, sorry, metabolic metabolites from fat cells. So I'm a big fan, guys, of trying to get into the sauna. And if you are going to use a sauna, the, so far from the research they've done, that secret number is about 20 minutes. You want to spend about 20 minutes. So keep in mind, the average hourglass on your typical dry sauna is 15 minutes. I always say this. The first 15 minutes is to get you into the last five minutes. So anyways, guys, hope you enjoyed today's episode. Um, it's one I wanted to work on for a while. I think it's really important because we did, you know, like I was saying, I'm be coming up with another one soon about all the different things we have to do at our home. Our homes are just toxic 
waste piles of nuclear radioactive dust and disease in the air. Okay, it's not that bad, but it's still pretty bad. You know, a lot of the stuff that we're breathing in day to day, whether it's the cleaner we use in our couch, the fibers in our carpet, what we're putting on our body, a lot of the stuff, guys, these are silent, invisible, microscopic killers. So, Hope I opened your eyes a little bit today. Please make sure you join me again on the Thrive Life Podcast. Make sure you share this. We're only going to get better as we go. Anyways, guys, have a good day, and I will talk to you later. Mm -hmm.